0: Well, I have to confess that every time I embark on a new study from the pulpit in a new book, I have some sense of foreboding, you might say. I think that's because I typically spend maybe a couple of weeks, sometimes a couple of months reading through a book and reading through theologies about a book and trying to wrap my arms around everything that's in there. And so when I step forward to launch this study, there's so much that I see and I fear that somehow we'll miss something, that somewhere along the way in the next three years or whatever it might be, that some stone will be left unturned or some passage won't quite be examined clear enough and that we won't do justice to that particular book. And let me go ahead and give you the teaser. We won't. We won't fully do justice, especially when it comes to a book like Romans, which is considered by most, if not all, the crown jewel of the New Testament and really of all the Scripture. The crown jewel of theology, the crown jewel of, in in some ways, our salvation, in our gospel, and we could string together quotations and accolades about this book all morning long from theologians uh, beginning maybe with Martin Luther who called it the purest gospel and mandated that everyone in his church memorize the book by heart all the way to our modern era where uh, the most well-known and, and uh, prominent theologians and scholars and pastors uh, seem to make this their magnum opus and the focus of their attention and their preaching ministry. Some expositors have produced volumes of commentaries as they have slowly and methodically worked their way through this monumental book. And so I feel that as I come that this great book somehow might be missed because of its great importance. But it's surprising really in light of that how important it is and how much it's been celebrated, it's really surprising to me that so many people are still unaware, or even we might say uncertain, about why it was written in the first place. Why was Romans written? I might might pose the question to you. And ask you why, if this book is so central to the Bible and so central to the the New Testament, so central to the gospel, why did Paul write it? If you're a a student of Scripture, you recognize in other passages of Scripture very clear purposes. You know that Paul wrote the book of Colossians, for example, because there was some sort of pre-Gnostic heresy going on in the church at Colossae, and he was trying to address it at various uh, junctures. You know that the book of Galatians was written because Paul was trying to, on one hand, defend his own role as an apostle, and on the other hand, attack or, or undermine Judaizers who were trying to import these Jewish practices into the church. You know that 1 Timothy was written so that people would know how to conduct themselves in the household of the living God, which is a pillar in support of truth. You know why 2 Timothy and Titus and uh, all these other books were written, and even in a book like Ephesians, which is more of a sort of a circular letter, there are still clearly defined purposes that people have discerned from books like that. Or you take a, a whole category of books like 2 Corinthians, which, or, or the book of, as I said, Galatians or Philippians or Colossians, and every one of them have a discernible opponent that you can see Paul actually address in the book at various junctures and actually call them out and rebuke them for various things. And so there's there's a clear line of connection between why he wrote the book and some situation that's taking place on the ground. Or even in our recent study of 1 Corinthians, as we move through the book at various points, we would see where Paul is answering a question or responding to a letter or addressing a specific situation in that church and and so we can construct in our minds some uh, application at least some reason why every one of those books was written and we come to romans and we ask why was it written what was the purpose well some people might think well it's just theology right This is a systematic theology. This is Paul's statement of his own doctrine. Well, if that's the case, there's some serious gaps. I mean, the book has rich, rich theological sections, but it's almost completely lacking in Christology. And we certainly wouldn't begin to say that Christology, the doctrine of Christ, is not important to Paul. There is essentially no ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, And the best we can say about some things like pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or even eschatology, the doctrine of end times, is that they are lightly touched on, but in balance with other doctrines, they are not given equal weight. at the same time, we note that after the beginning of the letter and really well into the final chapters of the book... As Paul begins to unfold what he's saying here, basically from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 14, the very end of verse 32, he doesn't make a single reference specifically to the Roman church, to their situation, to his relationship with them, or anything that would give us any sense of what might personally be the connection for the Apostle Paul. All that sort of leads people, unfortunately, to read the book of Romans in something of a vacuum, or they they tend to read it as just a sort of abstract doctrinal treatise. And there's always a grave danger of whenever you do that, a grave danger that we would at any point read the Bible or even study theology, and it all sort of becomes abstract for us. It becomes all about understanding doctrine, repeating doctrine, categorizing doctrine, all for doctrine's sake, with no real sense of what it means, with no real sense of what difference it makes, with no real sense of how it applies, and and with no real sense of why it was given to begin with. We can sometimes read a portion of the Bible like this without ever really drawing the connections that the original writer and that God himself originally intended for the book. Well, at the outset, we recognize that there was a purpose for the book of Romans. It's not just a systematic uh, textbook, a systematic theology textbook. It's not Paul's personal doctrinal statement, like you might, you know, go out there and download the doctrinal statement of our church that sort of says everything we believe about everything. Paul doesn't include that here. He doesn't have a full list of everything he believed about everything. It's not his attempt to lay out everything he knows about doctrine. He has selectively addressed certain key doctrines for certain reasons in this book. There's a reason for the book and therefore there's a reason why Paul chose these doctrines to highlight and not others. And so before we get into the particulars of the book, I thought it would be helpful for us to get our minds around the purpose to begin with and to orient our minds to the situation of the first readers. To, if you will, put ourselves in their seats or maybe in their shoes. And so, so that by doing that, the Holy Spirit... Would have an opportunity to connect in our hearts and minds what this is all about to begin with, so that we know why why it was given how it applies, and so really, to begin with or to start with, we need to start at the end and so if you have your bibles turn with me to Romans chapter fifteen all the way to the end of the book, and perhaps the Uh, clearest, not the very end, but to the back of the book, perhaps the clearest statement that Paul gives anywhere about the purpose of his writing. And we find in verses 22 through 24, Paul really addressing the issue of partnership, the issue of partnership. And this is what he says in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. You say, what the reason? what's the reason? Well, he, he's outlined it from verses, really, 13 all the way through verse 21. He's been talking about his ministry and how he has uh, been called to this work and he's been busy with the priority of this ministry that God had given to him. And although he had plans, his plans had been delayed or his plans had been hindered. And it's... Uh, a passive indicating that this isn't something that he mapped out. This is something he clearly sees as the providence of God. He actually uses the word in copto, which is a word that they would use for a trench or a ditch that they would put around their, their position in a military combat. And this is a way that they would prevent people from advancing on them, either rolling their equipment or their horses or whatever it might be because they have a big ditch in, between them and their enemy. And so Paul's saying, look, I've been wanting to come to you, but God has sort of put a ditch in between me and you. And that ditch, to be specific for Paul, was the preaching of Christ from, he says, verse 18 and 19, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which would be modern-day Albania. So in other words, from the Middle East and all up through what we would consider that northeast corridor of the Mediterranean, all the way across modern Turkey, all the way across the sea there to the Greek peninsula, and all the way around the other side of that peninsula, Paul says, I have preached the gospel everywhere. It doesn't mean that he preached literally in every single city or every single town or for that matter even every single synagogue but what paul did was he carried out his strategy which was to go to every key city or every key center within those cities and to make the gospel accessible he had made the gospel accessible in all of those areas, there's no way that he could have possibly reached into every subgroup, every sub-linguistic group, or every sub, uh, sub-ethnic group. Paul didn't claim to know, you know, dozens of languages or any of that, but he went to the main cities, he preached in those main cities, in the main language of the day, the trade language, which was Greek, so that at the end, he could say, I have completely Preach the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He's fulfilled his strategy. But now that strategy is driving him to Rome. And not just Rome, but west of Rome. He wants to, he's preached in the northeast corridor. Now he wants to preach in the northwest corridor, which for him stretched from Rome all the way to the very western boundaries of the Roman Empire, which would have been Spain. And it made a lot of sense for Paul. Spain, of course, had been settled by the Romans, or at least conquered by the Romans, and consequently, just like the East, they had all of their Roman roads going into the West. All of that was very accessible for them. All of that uh, facilitated the preaching of the gospel. But even just as much, Spain was, in fact, the philosophical center of the day. You say, well, I thought Athens was the philosophical center. It was in a previous generation. But at this particular juncture in time, it was Spain who was producing all of the great philosophers and rhetoricians. That is the place where Rome regularly turned for the tutors and the philosophers who would come in and literally tutor the children of the emperors themselves. And so Paul clearly had a strategy. He had a plan to go into Spain and to preach in there. Centers and in their key cities as well, he in fact, he had this plan for years. and although Paul recognized Providence, that God had currently put a ditch between him and the, him and, and Rome and him in this goal, he didn't see somehow a conflict between careful planning and the providence of God that although Providence had temporarily hindered him, he still wanted to enact his plan which involved the, uh, the meticulous step of going to Rome and being by them helped along the way. In fact, he says it in verse 23. Now, since I no longer have any room for work in these ranges, I don't have any space. In other words, I've accomplished everything. And since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul says, this is my plan. I'm going to come. I've been wanting to come. And as I come, I want to be helped. The word is propempoi. And it's used every time it's used in the New Testament. It's always used in a very specific and technical sense of financial partnership, financial support. I mean, you can look into the book of Acts, whether it's Acts 15 or Acts 20 or Acts 21. You can look into 1 Corinthians 16, Titus 3, 3 John. Wherever you look, you find the word. Every single instance, it's always used of a church financially coming alongside of and supporting a missionary, an itinerant preacher, a minister of some sort for the fulfillment of their ministry. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm coming to you and I'm coming in order to raise funds. I want to come. I want to be encouraged by you. I want to have mutual fellowship. But I want you to take up what we would say is a missionary offering in order to help me accomplish this ministry over the next couple of years. Now, Paul, of course, was the one who has made famous what we often refer to as tent making. And if you've been around the church for very long or you've been around missions, you may have heard that term. It it typically in our day refers to missionaries or preachers or whatever it might be who would receive their wages, their earning outside of the church. And what we might call secular work or whatever it might be, they would work uh, during the day so that they could do ministry in their off times. And Paul did this for a while. Acts chapter 18, literally, he made tents. He attached himself to some other Jews who were in the same profession, and for the course of maybe a year, maybe a little bit less than a year, Paul labored, making tents, and he would do that six days a week. And then in the evenings and on the Sabbath. He would preach the gospel. He would go out there and do the ministry. And he did that until, we're told, in Acts 18, uh, uh, Timothy and Silas showed up from Macedonia with a massive gift. The Macedonian churches had combined together and had given this enormous gift so that we're told there in Acts 18, Paul left the tent making and devoted himself completely to the ministry of the word from that point forward. And not only him, but also Timothy and also Silas. So in other words, this was a huge gift, a huge Generous blessing from the churches where they came alongside and gave plenty of money so that Paul could completely survive and all of his co-workers could completely survive in the full-time ministry of the word. In other words, Paul might have temporarily engaged in tent making, but the normal course of his life was to be supported by the financial contributions of churches. And this is what he did. And this is what ministers typically do. They, 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 they come along, missionaries come along, and they do what we sometimes call deputation or fundraising or whatever it might be, and it's a completely honorable and biblical and godly thing. And Paul has no shame in telling the church, I'm coming to you, and what I want is financial support, and I want financial support in order to fulfill the ministry, the ministry the Lord's given me. In fact, it's all spoken in the context. If you have your Bible still open to Romans 15 there, you can back up to verse 18. This is where Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Mentioning that God had used signs and wonders and other uh, powerful things through him. He says so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, look, this is what it's all about for me. It's all about bringing about obedience among the Gentiles, among the nations. Now, that's an important point of contact for us. Because this focus of bringing about obedience of the Gentiles or the obedience of faith, it literally frames this letter. In fact, flip over to Romans 16. Look at the last Three verses of the entire book. The last three verses of Romans. And notice what Paul says beginning in verse 25. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. In other words, Paul says, look, I want you to know this was all in the Old Testament. All this was back there in the Old Testament, it was, it was prophesied, it was there. He says this, 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 this was disclosed through the prophetic writings has now been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. What's that? That is the Great Commission. I mean, the reason that, that all the nations are getting to know this is because Christ commanded it. He commanded that we go into all the nations and to teach them to obey all that he commanded. And that's what he goes on to say there in verse 26. To bring about the obedience of faith. Now, go all the way to the very beginning of the book. The very first few verses. The first five verses of the book of Romans. And listen to what Paul has to say. Paul He says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Same thing. This is all there. This is all God's plan, all God's promise. It's all there in the Old Testament. Concerning, he says, verse 3, concerning his son who was a descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now listen, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. This frames the entire letter. This is the way, this is his opening words. This is the final word that he has to say to them. This is at the core of why he says, I'm coming to visit you. The reason I'm coming is because I have a calling on my life to bring about the obedience of the faith among the Gentiles. I want to close the letter reminding you that you have an obligation to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. I want to open the letter by reminding you that you have an obligation to bring about the obedience of the faith in the Gentiles and among the nations. Now, if you think I'm repetitive in my preaching, read the book of Romans. Paul's making a point, and he wants them to catch the point. The entire letter is framed around that concern. He begins with it, he ends with it, and it's about partnership. He wants them to grab hold of this. So, if that is the case, and it seems to be, at least to me, that partnership is such a central concern that Paul would open the letter and end the letter that way, then wouldn't those opening verses and those closing couple of chapters be enough? I mean, couldn't you just sort of begin, So couldn't you just sort of take 118 all the way through chapter 14, verse 32, and just lop all that stuff off and just have a nice letter, you know, Paul... Apostle Jesus Christ, a call to bring about obedience. Hey, I want to come visit you. I've been planning on doing it. By the way, we got to do this. Bring about obedience. If the whole point is partnership, wouldn't that be enough? No, not for the Apostle Paul. It's not enough. Why all that stuff then? If this is his driving concern, why one eighteen all the way through fourteen thirty two? Why is this so essential? Uh, that that the romans need to know this well in a single word in a single word it's all about peace it's all about peace peace and partnership several people have in fact summarized the book of romans that way the gospel of peace It's a story about peace. I mean, it's a story really that begins with hostility, and it begins with judgment. It begins with judgment over all the Gentiles, and then he talks about judgment over all the Jews, and then chapter 3, he kind of talks about sort of this universal judgment. So it begins with hostility, but then Paul moves into what we sometimes call propitiation, or sometimes we call satisfaction, or sometimes we call uh, appeasement. In other words, it begins with hostility, but then it moves to God establishing peace between himself and us by satisfying his own wrath. And then from there, he talks about peace between us and God. He talks about peace in our own consciences. He talks about peace between Jews and Gentiles. He talks about peace among believers I mean, this is not a book, as we said, that aims to lay out every detail of Paul's theology, but it very specifically and very richly lays out the details of God's wrath and the provision that he made with Christ and how that provision provides peace with God. And then that is applied to various contexts within the church and within society. Now, Paul, as a missionary, would have understood, like every good missionary understood that peace and harmony, especially within the churches, are vital to what he does. I mean, he would have understood that any church that is suffering discord and disharmony is a threat to his overall ministry and a a threat to the viability of his mission. He understood that that kind of discord, that kind of disharmony could disrupt his supporting churches, could disrupt their prayer focus, could disrupt their evangelistic zeal. And so Paul would have had, like every missionary, this desire to do everything within his power. Or we might say, if we wanted to borrow a phrase right out of Romans 12, as much as is within his being or as much as it depends on him. He wanted to help them be at peace. Paul also had friends in this church. That couple that he worked with in tent making, their names were Aquila and Priscilla. He met them in Corinth, we're told in Acts chapter 18. He had found them because we're told that they had been, uh, if you will, uh, jettisoned or they had been cast out of Rome by a decree from Claudius, the emperor. Acts 18 says uh, they had come from Italy, or Aquila had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So these were two Jews who apparently had lived in Rome. They were forced to leave when all the Jews were forced to leave by a decree from the Roman emperor Claudius. Now that decree happened in 49 A.D., And it's apparently the result of some turmoil or some hostility or tumult that was taking place or had arisen between Jews and Christians because the Roman historian Suetonius actually notes this in his history. He says that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, that is the Roman emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. And most historians, I think, rightly conclude that Suetonius didn't know the the real catalyst about this, and so he uh, interposed the Roman name Crestus where he had heard them talking about Christos, that is Christ. And so not knowing all the background, he's just trying to put the best explanation here, but apparently there was this conflict that arose in 49 AD between Jews who were still practicing Judaism and Christians, some of them Jews, maybe some of them Gentiles, all revolving around Christ. And so in order to preserve public peace, Claudius just expelled all the Jews. Just cast them all out of Rome. No matter whether you were a traditional Jew practicing Judaism. No matter whether you were a Christian Jew practicing your faith in Christ. And Aquila and Priscilla, along with every other Jew, were just swept up as a part of the, as a part of the decree. Now, this would have had profound impact on the church, as you might imagine. As most people conclude, I think it's right that the early believers in almost every corner of the Roman Empire were Jews. I mean, in the early days, we're told they gathered at Pentecost and the Lord uh, descended and and Peter preached the gospel and many, many were saved. And instead of returning back to all their various locations and cities where there were no churches where there was no discipleship where there was no opportunity to plug in and grow they all decided just to stay put in in jerusalem and they were there for a number of years maybe three years maybe six years they were there just every day meeting and every day being taught and discipled by the apostles until one day there was a conflict that arose over stephen and because of stephen's Persecution and eventual martyrdom. We're told in Acts chapter eight that all the Christians then were scattered or fled out of Jerusalem. They were run out of Jerusalem and then eventually returned to their homelands. And no doubt some of those early uh, Christians would have been people who who claimed Rome as their home. And so in the early days they would have returned back to Rome and they would have planted a church there. And like most places that you see in the New Testament, they would have carried out their evangelistic efforts in the synagogues. They would have gone to the places where people wanted to talk about the Bible, where they wanted to talk about religion, where they wanted to talk about spiritual things, which apparently was the synagogue. And this is where they did their evangelism. Most of their early converts probably would have been Jews as well, along with some Gentiles. But when Claudius expels all the Jews... All of these Christian Jews are swept up in the process. So essentially, all the founding members of the church, all of the leaders of the church, and most likely all of the teachers in the church are in one fell swoop cast out. The only thing left behind would have been Gentile believers. That's all that was there. Well, eventually, the emperor Claudius dies five years later in 54 A.D., and when he died, so did the enforcement of his decree. And so beginning in 54 A.D., Jews began to slowly migrate back home. As a matter of fact, those Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, that Paul had met in Corinth, having been cast out by the decree... They're now back in Rome because in Romans 16, Paul mentions the fact that they're in Rome and they're hosting a church in their home and he wants them to be greeted by him through this letter. So you, you have now this, this massive repatriation, this massive return of all these Jews who had been cast out years before. And so it really doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize that when they return, it might have caused problems because they had now been gone for five years. Many of them, when they left, they were leaders, they were teachers in the church. But now when they came back, others had taken up those roles, uh, having been forced to. And not only that, there might have been even a little bit of tension in the air because these Gentile Christians, the whole reason Jews were kicked out is because they had become targets They were were the targets of hostility and maybe what we might even call terrorism today. They were were, uh, uh, attacked. uh, They were uh, targeted in all these ways. And so there might have been some sort of lingering racial tension or, at the very least, distrust between Gentiles and Jews. You could add on top of that, then, in the course of those five or six years, while all the Jews had been expelled, the church may have or most likely adopted a more Gentile flavor, a more Gentile culture. Or at least the early influences of Judaism would have been greatly diminished, maybe abandoned altogether. Certain Jewish holidays, certain Jewish celebrations, certain Jewish feasts, which might have been a part of the church culturally early on because it was made up by so much Jews, so many Jews, now were meaningless and now had been left aside. Certainly things like circumcision or even dietary laws, which might have been just a natural matter of cultural course, now were no longer central to the church anymore. And add on top of that, that whereas before these Jews might have been the majority... Now, having been cast out, and as they slowly make their migration back into the church, and as other Gentile believers, no doubt, had come to faith in Christ, they probably returned as now a minority. And so this church that they had loved so dearly, and prayed for, and taught, and given leadership to, and now that they return five, six years later, it has dramatically changed. And they're standing in it has dramatically changed. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to suggest that this caused tension. And in fact, when you look into the Bible, uh, into the the, the book of Romans here, you see that. And people have asked, as they've looked at the book of Romans through the years, look, is this book written primarily to Jewish Christians or is it written to Gentile Christians? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because as you go through the book, he talks to both of them. And sometimes in... Very direct ways. I mean, he begins in chapter 1, verse 16, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul, by the way, writing probably in about 57 AD. So this is just a few years since these Jews now have started to return. He go over to chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And you can go down to verse 17. You, if you call yourself a Jew, in other words, Paul is now talking directly to Jews if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you or yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, you think you're a teacher. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you, not, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And even down in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, What advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. He says in verse 9 of chapter 3, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we already have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You can go to chapter 4 in verse 9, and he's talking about the blessings that came from Abraham and uh, and even through David. He says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. This is another way of saying Jews and Gentiles. Is it only for the Jews or is it also for the Gentiles? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe uh, without being circumcised. In other words, Paul says that Abraham is the father of uh, of faith for everyone, Jew or Gentile, no matter where they come from. And you can move into chapter 5, and it's the same sort of thing. He says, look, we all are descendants of Adam. Every one of us. And because of that, every one of us inherit Adam's sinful nature. And not only that, we inherit Adam's judgment. But not only that, he says, we all have an opportunity to inherit righteousness because of one man, Jesus Christ. And so having laid out that universal scope of of salvation in in the sense that every one of us are on equal standing before God and every one of us equal standing with Christ in the sense that we can all receive Him, Paul then shifts in, verses, in chapter 6 through 8 to begin talking about then what does righteousness look like apart from the law? Having no longer been enslaved to the law, but still enslaved to holiness, still enslaved to righteousness, in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, he begins to talk about a sanctification that arises out of the life of the Spirit. And you come to chapter 9, And he begins to discuss then the fact that there are still so many Jews who don't embrace the gospel. And Paul says that this really is the climax of his whole message here is that this is God's sovereign hand, his electing hand, that while he has broken off Israel for the moment and he's grafted the church into the plan of salvation, he will, he says, graft Israel back into that same plan in some future time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In fact, there in Romans chapter 11, he speaks directly to the Gentiles. He spoke to Jews earlier. Now in verse 13 of Romans 11, he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. He ends that whole section by celebrating the wisdom and the majesty of God's plan in some great doxology in Romans eleven thirty three through 36. You come into chapter 12, and he begins now to apply all of that stuff right into the context of their situation. He tells them, therefore, in light of all these things, No one ought to think of himself more highly uh, than God wills. He tells them that in light of all this wonderful gospel, that as far as it depends on them, they need to live at peace. And it just isn't only in their church. He goes to Romans 13, and he begins to even talk about in the context of the government When he says, look, God establishes governments, they are by his decree, and you need to submit, you need to yield, you need to be at peace with your government. And he's saying this to people who had been ejected from their homes, from their careers, from their jobs, and now are coming back and having to face head on all of the loss that was a part of that and would have been tempted to be bitter, and be resentful, and be rebellious, and he's telling them, no, you need to live at peace. You need to be submissive to the governing authorities, because God has established them. And you need to live within a a dark and and wicked world, he says at the end of 13, uh, conducting yourselves honorably, and, and, and by extension, peaceably in that society. And it just isn't even that broad context of the church or the broad context of society when you come to chapter 14 he gets right into their personal lives as he begins to explain now look some people are going to continue observing jewish holidays and jewish festivals and sabbath days and all of those things and some people are going to continue following dietary codes and all of those things don't quarrel about this he says Understand that these are just issues of personal preference, not issues of the gospel. And then after saying all of that, Paul says, now I want to come see you. I want to be helped by you on my way so that this gospel goes out to everybody, all the nations. This isn't theology in a vacuum. It's never intended to be that way. If that's the way you've read Romans, if that's the way you've thought about Romans, you've missed something. Paul had a specific intent, a specific purpose in writing all this. And while the applications that we will find in the coming months and years, they will definitely go beyond the original situation. We place ourselves in the best position to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. By placing ourselves the best we can into that original situation of those original readers, this gospel, it ought to create two great endeavors within you. First of all, it ought to create in us a heart for partnership. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. It ought to generate within us, as we read what we read on these pages, it ought to generate within us this yearning in order to make whatever sacrifices we can to carry out the calling and the command that God has placed on us that began all the way back in the Old Testament and are being fulfilled all the way through the gospel to bring about the obedience of all the nations. Secondly, it ought to create in us a heart for peace. It ought to create in us a heart to do amongst ourselves what God did for us. To bring about peace, to be known as peacemakers, as Christ said. Because when you're known as a peacemaker, you're known as a child of God. Listen, when those two things become the driving force of your life, when they become the driving force of your ministry, when they become the driving force of your relationships, when they become the driving force of your conversations, then you'll know if you understand the doctrine of Romans. But if you haven't grasped those two things, don't imagine that you've begun to understand this book. Whatever application you've drawn, whatever meaning you've pulled out of it, doesn't begin with the meaning that Paul had. Peace and partnership in the gospel. That's what we want God to do through the book of Romans. Let's we'll stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful. That you have not left us without guidance, without direction, without light. You've given it to us on the pages of this precious book. You've given it to us through the glorious revelation of the gospel. You've given it to us in your precious son. I pray that we would not miss it. Or misapply it. Or let it become in any way. A platform for pride and arrogance and boasting. Rather than that for which you intended it. May this gospel propel us forward in the mandate that you've given to us. The mandate that all the nations would hear and would obey. The mandate that we live at peace amongst ourselves. May you do that, Lord, according to your grace and mercy. In Christ's name, amen.